the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Summers, a licensed therapist and birth trauma survivor. This is a space where we talk about what it means to experience trauma during a time that we expected to be one of the best of our lives. This stuff is dark and it's messy, but we're here to shine a light on it. We're here to hold your hand as you walk through the darkness. We're here to show you that the light exists and we're going to help you find it. So wherever you are, take a deep breath, settle in, and let's do this. Welcome back to the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jenna Overball, who is a licensed professional counselor based in Wisconsin and specializes in obsessive compulsive disorder. Jenna has been working with those who experience OCD and anxiety for the past 15 years. She is a wealth of knowledge, and I have learned so much just from her Instagram page and all of the different tips and supports that she speaks about in that space. I am really excited for you all to listen to this episode because I learned so much. I am hopeful that you will learn so much and also feel less alone if you're having some of these same feelings and experiences. Jenna shares all about her opinion on OCD and anxiety and evidence-based treatment, and she also shares her own personal experience with postpartum OCD and what that looked like and how difficult it was for even her as an expert in the field to get the appropriate care. So let's go ahead and dive into today's episode with Jenna Overball. Hi, Jenna. I am so excited to have you here today talking about all things OCD, is how I like to put it. Um, Yeah, yeah. There's so many people in my community who have questions about this, and I think there's been so much more conversation around intrusive thoughts and what that means versus things like psychosis, and there's just so much more in the news and the media lately, and a lot of questions about it. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Happy to get into all of the things. And I know, you know, people might be listening to this far off into the future, but just recently we're in the the news era of like Lindsay Clancy. Um, I know you've probably had some women talk to you about that. That was a really triggering story that happened here in the U.S. So um, yeah, I think it's bringing to light some good conversation, but obviously very difficult for women to deal with. So let's dive in. Absolutely. Yeah. So to start off with Jenna, can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself, how you got into this particular part of the field and sort of what that has looked like for you? Yeah, well, I've been working with people who have OCD and anxiety since 2008. So um, I have to, I could do the math. It's just so much easier to say <laughs> just forever, forever, it's forever. <laughs> um, and it really started because I knew from a really early age that I was an anxious person that I, even in kindergarten, I feel like I had this anxious entity, kind of like a dark cloud, just trying to ruin things. And yeah. at the same time though, I always got very competitive with it. Even again, from a very early age, like in kindergarten, I remember very vividly, we were playing like this heads up seven up game again, probably dating myself horrifically, but, um, I just remember being so nervous, like, oh my gosh, like, what if I, you know, you know, pick the wrong person or like I touch them wrong and they think I'm weird. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go and like pick the scariest person. Um, or I went to a new school, my family moved and I was like, oh my gosh, who am I going to sit with at lunch? It's like, well, I'm going to sit with the scariest person. So there was always this element to me that knew 
early on that I did not want that to win. Like my reaction to it was never to retreat. It was always to just keep going and like go into the fire. Um, And that was my way of being until I went to college. I knew I wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't want to be like what most people think of as a therapist. Like, let's talk about the past. Let's talk about your childhood. Here's a tissue, like emotions and just like heavy emotion. Um, I wanted to like do things. I wanted to almost be more of like a coach, but at the time that wasn't a thing. Um, And so when in my intro to psychology course, we actually learned, luckily enough, um, we learned about obsessive compulsive disorder. We learned about anxiety disorders, trauma, and I learned about exposure and response prevention, which is we, we can get into it later, but essentially yeah. it's exactly that, right? Like it's, it's exposing yourself to anxiety provoking situations, going into the fire um, and essentially, you know, not letting fear make the decisions for you. And I just love that. That was like, it's in my bones. I want to do this. So literally since 2008, every research paper, every internship, every opportunity, it had to be about OCD. It had to be about anxiety or exposure and response prevention. And so eventually went on to grad school to study it more and become more specialized. I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital um, in the OCD and anxiety recovery unit with kids and adolescents. I went on to work at Rogers Memorial Hospital, which is the one of very, very few in the whole entire world, an OCD and anxiety residential recovery unit with some of the most debilitating cases of OCD and anxiety in the world. Um, And since then, I've kind of been on my own, doing my own thing. Um, I really went, especially when COVID hit, just like went hard into social media and education advocacy, trying really hard to make these skills and these concepts more accessible to people. Um, And it really took off from there. Um, But I feel like I became much more intimate in a way that I never wanted to be with OCD and anxiety and intrusive thoughts when I had my son. He's now five. Um, He just turned five on Valentine's Day. Um, But back in 2018, I really, really struggled with harm intrusive thoughts and sexual intrusive thoughts. And it was just terrible. It was it was awful. Um, and my heart really breaks for new parents out there who don't have the context that I had. Like I always knew what it was that I was struggling with because I had had at that time, 10 years of experience under my belt. Um, and so I never had, thank God, like I never had the experience of like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Like I always knew what was wrong with me. Um, and I, it just was so, it was already so debilitating to me as it was like to imagine the added level of debilitation that could be this condition in addition to not knowing what it was. Um, like I just, I honestly, like, I don't know how women make it out alive. And and we know that some women don't. OCD is one of the top three um, causes of maternal death and suicide. And so um, it's, it's debilitating. It's awful. Um, and I think yeah. a lot of that does stem from not knowing what it is and suffering in silence. And so, you know, if someone out there can hear a little bit more about it and realize that they're not crazy, that they're not broken and that they're not the only one out there with these thoughts. And I think it can make a really big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that. You obviously have done so much work um, in this area and I love your Instagram. I have learned so much from your Instagram just from perusing. Um, And I think the point that you bring up too about OCD is there is this piece of it, especially in postpartum where, again, we're not going to compare disorders here, but just sort of the depression and anxiety, like there's sadness and there's 
anxiety and there's sort of that hyper arousal and we're, we're kind of familiar with these feelings. Um, and when OCD comes into the picture, I think it can be so jarring if you've never experienced these types of intrusive thoughts before. And there's that, that crazy making that I'm going crazy feeling that might feel a little different than something like a depression, anxiety, again, not better or worse, but just really, um, jarring is for lack of a better word. Well, that's exactly, I mean, jarring is such a great way to describe it. Um, there's a, a lot of like discussion in my field and in the OCD and anxiety field about like, what are the differences between OCD and anxiety, right? Because OCD used to be an anxiety disorder in the DSM. It now no longer is, which not many of us agree with that decision, but that's a different conversation. Um, But like, for the most part, they really do function very similarly, right? Like in generalized anxiety disorder, we're talking about safety behaviors In OCD, we're talking about rituals or compulsions, but they really serve the same exact purpose, right? They serve the purpose of reducing anxiety, but it's just temporary. It makes you feel worse over time. Um, But a lot of people, Sally Winston, PhD, she's incredible. She's a world-renowned expert in the field of OCD. She, I believe, coined the term like OCD light to describe generalized anxiety disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's you know, pretty close, like to my own experience, I can't obviously speak for everybody, but you know, that's kind of one way that we do describe it, you know, more superficially to people is that, you know, imagine anxiety, but imagine anxiety almost as like the rolling thunder in the background, right? Like it's not necessarily immediately threatening. It's always kind of there, but it's, it's kind of like this doom feeling, but it's not really like there. It's not immediately threatening. You can kind of carry on with your day, uh, but there's something off, right? Like there's something in the background this rolling thunder. Whereas OCD to me is like that clap of lightning. Like it is there and it's fierce and it's threatening, right? Like, and it just jars you and it wakes you up. Like that to me is the difference. And it's obviously so personal to the person, but that's been the best way that I could kind of describe it is that I've always been an anxious person. Like I've carried that with me and that largely didn't get in the way of my functioning. But when I had my first intrusive thought of my son, it was completely on a different level. Like it was like, And a lot of people who have OCD can actually, not always, but they can bring it back to like the moment that their brain broke. Like they can actually kind of boil it back down to that thought, like where they feel like they had their first intrusive thought, like that clap of lightning almost. And it's not to say that they never had those before. They never had anxiety before. They were obviously very vulnerable to that. But that this 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 experience of intrusive thoughts, it can just feel so much more threatening and so much more sudden. Um, but my first intrusive thought was when my son, he was about three weeks old. Um, he was just a cute little infant, like so vulnerable, so like fragile, right? Um, so cute and just loving every single thing about him. I was putting socks on him and I had the intrusive thought, like, what if I snapped his ankles? And then I had this like secondary thought, which is very common in OCD that, oh my gosh, like, what if I actually did that and I liked it? Like, what if there was something about me that actually would want to do that? Like, would I ever lose control and do something like that? And I, from that moment on, like I I backed my hands away and I was like, "Uh uh-uh, like I'm not doing that. I don't want anything to do with that experience. Like I never want to have that thought again. And I backed away and I wasn't putting socks on him. And of course, then like as fear does, it generalizes and it snowballs. And so eventually I wasn't able to put pants on him. 
I wasn't able to put shirts on him, change his diaper. And by the end of my maternity leave at the end of three months, like I was not able to be alone with him. It was hard for my husband to even like go into the next room to the bathroom to go pee. Like it would like my heart would sink. Because it was so difficult to be alone with him. Like, oh my gosh, like what if I, what if something terrible happens in the 30 seconds that it takes my husband to pee? Um, And it's just, it's crazy to like in three months, right? Like it went from this one decision to not change his socks because of this thought. And then all this, like it, it, it just, it's like a wildfire. It just, it spreads and it spreads and it spreads and it's really, really awful. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And um, thank you for sharing that that piece of your story, because I think there are so many people who can relate to that when they feel that moment of that first intrusive thought and the way that they see it snowball. Of course, all stories and all experiences differ, but I have heard very similar um, events from from others in my community who have had those experiences. And, and research actually shows up to, I know <clears throat> what, what really frustrates me when we look up like a postpartum OCD, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We look at, we, we see like two to 3% of women struggle with postpartum OCD. And I'm like, no, there's so much wrong with that. There's so much wrong with that statistic. Like, yep. so if we break that down, two to 3%, experience postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder like one are you even asking women the questions because i know i was only given the edinburgh depression scale which is like a very (laughs) generic face valid which means like you know what it is that you're filling out and so therefore it's like not as reliable because like it's very difficult to be honest about that right like one of the questions on the edinburgh depression scale i'm not going to say it word for word but it's like do you have thoughts of killing yourself like right. uh i'm not going to fill that out honestly and then give it back to the well-meaning secretary like right i'm i'm probably not going to be honest about that and so one and like, are we even asking the right questions? Probably not. So within that two to 3%, we're relying on women to come to us as professionals. And that's not okay. That's not accurate. Um, because even within that, right, like there's such a misunderstanding of what OCD is. We, as a, as a society, we tend to still to this day, think that OCD is just about contamination and fear of germs and cleanliness and having things be perfect. We don't yeah. think of it as these other things, even though of the research that I'm referencing, up to 100% of new parents endorse these intrusive thoughts with harm obsessions being the most frequent. So I forget off the top of my head, but the vast majority of new parents parents have had thoughts like that, have have had thoughts of accidentally or on purpose, not wanting to, right? That's why they're intrusive and unwelcome and and ego dystonic is what we call them. But the vast majority of these parents are having these thoughts, but no one talks about it. No one talks about it. And so again, even in the off chance that you do have a professional who is asking the right questions and you have a, a, a mom who, and a professional who understands like the the breadth of OCD and all the different ways it can come out. Do you really think that women are being honest? Like women aren't being honest and saying these things. I, for instance, I live in a smaller community and I'm, I was pretty well known within the community as being an OCD professional. I was one of the few here. Um, and my OBGYN, my doctor all knew that I was an OCD specialist, that this is what I did. And I was, you know, respected for, even when I went to my appointment, 
my six week follow-up appointment. And I told her in tears that I was really struggling and I just don't feel like myself. And I keep having these scary thoughts and I have nightmares of finding my son's body, like cut into a million pieces. And I'm the one who did it. And I am in jail for the rest. Like, oh honey, welcome to motherhood. Right. Like, well, I'm like, no, no, no. And then I said, I remember telling her something about how, like, every time that he cries, like, I feel like I'm going to die. Like, I feel, I felt like, you know, those, like, uh, I've never told anybody this before, except for my husband, but you know, those like awful rescue ASPCA, uh, commercials with the dogs. Yes. Yes. And like every, I feel like everyone, it's like a universal experience, like turn it off, turn it off. Cause it's like, it's so uncomfortable. Right. And it's so uncomfortable and it makes you feel so helpless and so power. Like that's how I felt times a hundred every time that my son cried. Like it was, I told my husband, I was like, it feels like I'm 24 seven. Like I'm watching dogs get just, just killed and like skinned alive. Like that's like how it feels when he cries. Like, and I, that's not okay. Like, that's not normal. Like, and I knew that that was not normal. Um, But she said, like, just give him a pacifier. Like, don't be so hard on yourself. Just give him a pacifier. And I was like, this is not what the, this is about. Like, I, I had to tell her, like, I literally, I have contemplated hurting myself. I cry in the bathroom more days than not. Like, I, I'm telling you right now, I need help. And that frustrated me so much because one, like I'm an, I'm an, I'm like an expert in OCD, right? Like I've been doing at that right. time for yeah. 10 or 11 years. Like you could, like, if you're not trusting me, you're definitely not trusting Jane who's coming in here after me. Yep. And second, like, why am I having to advocate for myself so much? Like I'm telling you what I, what I'm struggling with. Like, and so it, I, I got very, very frustrated and got this list of like 20 different providers that I needed to call, which like, that's exactly what a struggling mom wants to spend her day doing. Right. Like none of them were in my network. None of them specialized in OCD and anxiety. It was just like a complete mess. And all this time, I'm just thinking of all those other women out there who are dealing with exactly what I'm dealing with, but they don't know what they're dealing with. And I'm like, I have to do, I have to do something. I have to do something. And so, yeah, yeah, I just went all in. I started researching hardcore, like up to 80% of professionals misdiagnose cases of OCD that aren't these conventional subtypes of like cleanliness and perfectionism. Um, 30% of the time professionals will misdiagnose women with these scary thoughts as having psychosis when in reality, they just have obsessive compulsive disorder. And that has significant ramifications. Like yes, it does. imagine being a new mom and like going to a professional, truly having no idea what it is that you're talking about, like what is going on. And you get sent to an inpatient facility and you're taken away from your child. Like that, that, that not, you'll never forget that. You'll mm-hmm. never bounce back from that. So it's, it's terrible. And especially when OCD is literally, OCD is one of the most treatable conditions as debilitating as it is. It is one of the most treatable conditions and exposure and response prevention or treatment for it is more effective for OCD and anxiety than any other treatment for any other disorder. And so it's like the treatment isn't the problem. Like, and especially now with like virtual options and all of the online resources, like accessibility is less and less of an option. The problem is our like our system and how we treat moms. It's just, it's such a mess. It is. It's absolutely insane. And, um, 
I have so many questions running through my head right now <laughs> and everything that you just said. But um, the first question I have is you had mentioned that there's a large number, I forget the exact percentage you said, of parents who experience intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and we know this and we are starting to hear it a little bit more, but again, we're not talking about it. So people are feeling lonely, they're feeling isolated, they're feeling like they're going crazy. What is the difference between someone who experiences intrusive thoughts and someone who has OCD? Because that's a question that often gets asked. Absolutely. So we've done research also to show that everyone, there's like 95 to 99% of individuals across the world don't care yeah. about your mental health status, your socioeconomic status, your mental health background or whatever. People have intrusive thoughts. And these are intrusive thoughts. They're just these kind of weird random experiences of like these truly intrusive, right? Like as though it was an intruder, like it came in without you like wanting it there. You didn't beckon it. It came to you. And I almost call them like spam thoughts, right? Like where the yeah. heck did that come from? Like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And I think even the one to 5% of people in the studies that say they don't, I think they're lying or they don't understand the question. Like, yeah. Or they're like, brain dead. Like there's no way. Yeah. Um, because our brains, I'm like a very firm believer that the more complex a machine is, the more potential for error. Right. And so yeah. I often think about like, we have a small little Amazon facility here in, in Southeast Wisconsin. I, it probably doesn't have nearly the amount of errors as like the main Seattle facility, right? Because yeah. it's a larger facility. And so like, there's more errors there, the more complex a system is, the more room for error. It, yep. it doesn't take away from how awesome that structure is. Like it's still so much more powerful and the errors are worth it, but you have more potential for error. Like it's just, it's, it's like, duh. Right. So our brains are the same and our brains, like, you know, we, we are very creative and we have high level thinking and, you know, sometimes that's used to, you know, make an airplane, um, sometimes it's used to like create like a, the, the best selling novel, right? Like think about all the horrific things that Stephen King probably has in his mind. He just <laughs> right? turns it into a novel, right? Yeah. Like, you know, all these like horror film directors, like they have those scary thoughts too. They just think, oh my gosh, like that would make a great movie. They don't, you know, go the other direction, which is where there are lots of ways where people who have OCD or they're kind of vulnerable to having OCD their brains have some characteristics about them that make the, those thoughts a little bit stickier. Their brains kind of like Velcro, right? So whereas other individuals, they can just have these thoughts and let them come and let them go and go back to their day and like, you no, know, don't need, you know, where did that come from and kind of go on to the next thing. People who have OCD or have brains that are vulnerable to developing OCD, they tend to misinterpret those thoughts as being significant somehow. So people who have OCD, they tend to take responsibility for the thoughts. They tend to think those thoughts are important somehow or somehow mean something. They tend to judge those thoughts as like, oh my gosh, that was a really awful thought. They tend to want to control the thoughts. So they tend to like not want to have those thoughts again and just only think the good stuff. They tend to want to, a really big one, they tend to want to have certainty about the thoughts, right? So in my example with the sock, and it could be with literally any other example, this is all how it works, no matter what someone is anxious about. Um, in my example with the with the sock, right? I had this, I had this intrusive thought. What if you break your son's ankle? What if you snap his ankle? That's the intrusive thought. A lot of times it comes in the form of a question, but not always. Sometimes it's an image or a feeling of a command, like just do it, right? Like that can be really scary. But then where we go haywire, 
And where OCD really takes hold in the Velcro-y part is our misinterpretation of that being important somehow. So other people can be like, oh, I don't know where that thought came from. And they continue to put on the socks. I had the secondary thought that I told you about, which is, oh my gosh, what does that mean about me? Would I ever do that? And so I am in that situation, I'm taking responsibility for the thought. What does that mean about me? And furthermore, I'm uh, attributing significance to the thought like that, that somehow must mean something right that I want to do that. I can't accept that as just being a thought, right? Like that just didn't make sense to me at the time. And so, of course, when we start to misinterpret these thoughts as being significant somehow, of course, we get emotionally invested, right? Like we are convincing ourselves. I always tell my clients that it's once you start to get emotionally invested like that, it's like you're sitting down and you're watching a scary movie. Like, of course, you're going to start to have a physiological reaction. You're going to feel anxious and feel distressed. And we don't like feeling that way, right? Like as a human uh, being, we don't like to feel anxious. And we live in a society where we don't have to feel uncomfortable for very long, right? Like if we are um, hot, we can turn on the air conditioner. If we're cold, we turn on the heat. Like we, not to mention too, especially with moms, like the ridiculousness of like, you have to love every single moment and, you know, you know, good vibes only, whatever. It's especially toxic when it comes to motherhood and new parenthood. Um, but yeah. So we, we want to consciously or not, we want to feel better. Right. And it makes sense that we'd want to feel better. So we do something, whether that's a behavioral act or a mental thing, right? Because these things can be more mental too and non-observable. Um, but we would call those things a compulsion or a ritual. Those are synonymous. So the point of a compulsion and the function of a compulsion is to reduce or negate the anxiety that you feel from an obsession. So in that situation, to feel better from my obsession, what if I snapped my son's ankles? I backed away, right? I backed away and I avoided and I you know, just straight up avoid it. I don't want any part of it. Um, and so in the mo moment that helped me, right. That made me feel better. It was an averse, uh, you know, uh, I was averse to that feeling of anxiety and to that thought it got me out of that situation. So I had that like feeling of relief come over me like, Oh, okay. I don't have to feel that anymore. Good. But what people don't realize is that every time they do a compulsion like that, they actually give credibility to that initial obsession. And so by doing a ritual, you give credibility to that fear. So um, my backing away from the from my son at that point with the socks, consciously or not, you know, whether you're aware of it or not, by doing that, you are giving your brain the message that good thing you didn't, you know, put socks on your son. Otherwise, you could have snapped. Right. It's kind of your brain kind of gets this message of like, well, that must have been important because otherwise you wouldn't have acted as though it was right. Like yeah. it, it must have warranted it, it must have warranted a response because you responded. Right. And so, of course, I'm going to be in that situation again. I'm going to have to or be asked to put socks on my son. But now my brain has that memory. Right. So now my brain has that memory of. Okay, so last time that was really scary. That was really uncomfortable. And you didn't end up breaking his ankles. So that's a good thing. And so in order to make sure we don't break his ankles this time, let's make sure we definitely don't break, you know, change his socks. And just to be safe, because that's what our brains do. It's there to keep us safe and alive. Doesn't care if we're happy. It just wants to keep us alive. Just to be safe, let's make sure we don't put on his pants either, because his pants have to go by his ankles, right? Yep. So that's how it happens. Um 
So when we're looking at OCD, as far as like a diagnosis, we're looking, you know, that's kind of the process, right? Like there's obsessions and compulsions. And we obviously for most mental health conditions, right? Like we're obviously looking for other things like distress and impairment. So we all have obsessions. Like I said, we all, you know, we can be fully functioning adults and, and living a great life and still have obsessions and even compulsions, right? Like none of us are perfect. I avoid things all the time. Like, yeah. You know, like we all aren't like a plus five star students when it comes to managing anxiety, but it comes down to distress and impairment. So to what extent are these difficulties really causing you and your family distress, right? Like, are you cool living life the way that you've been living it? Like, does it work for you and your family? Then fine. Yeah. Probably won't forever. Um, But additionally from that, we also look at impairment. So the extent to which these obsessions and compulsions are really impairing your ability to do the things that you need and want to do in your life. So, you know, is it impeding your ability to take care of your child? Is it impeding your ability to, you know, eat, sleep, shower, like be alone with your child. Right. So, um, when distress and impairment are there, um, and that's obviously up to the person and, and up to the family, but, um, absolutely hundred percent time to potentially consider getting additional help from someone who actually understands the condition for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so I really want you to talk about, um, the different types of compulsions, specifically more of like the mental compulsions, because I feel like that's where people and therapists really miss with the diagnosis or just understanding of OCD. We see the flickering of the lights and the checking and the counting and all of those things that are very sort of obvious physical compulsions. And that's what's presented in the media most of the time. But can you talk a little bit more about these maybe less obvious to someone not trained in OCD compulsions? Yeah. So Dr. Stephen Phillipson, um, he's done great work. He's an expert in this field as well, been around for a very long time. He worked with a lot of individuals who had OCD Um, But he started to realize that there was something different about this particular subset of individuals that they didn't present with the typical like hand washing and checking of lights and all the observable compulsions. Um, But they still clearly met criteria for OCD, right? Like they were still clearly wrapped in that cycle and desperate to get out. And so he came to identify that they were struggling more with non-observable compulsions or mental compulsions. So again, compulsions are are still compulsions. They still affect the OCD cycle the same exact way as as physical compulsions. Um, So it's not like one's better or one's okay and and whatever, right? They all (laughs) kind of feed the same beast. Um, But Dr. Stephen Phillipson, he coined the term puro um, and that has taken off, um, and kind of become like its own OCD subtype or, you know, subset or theme. Um, and people mistake that sometimes as meaning purely obsessional, like purely, uh, like pure, O, like I, I just have obsessions and I don't have mm-hmm. compulsions that literally doesn't exist. There would be no obsessions if you were not doing compulsions. I always think of it like a telemarketer, right? Like, a telemarketer, especially like the same one over and over again, like maybe they'll keep calling, but 
If you're literally having the same telemarketer call you like 30 times a day, it's probably because you have picked up at least a couple of times, right? Like it's a great um, metaphor. I love that one. <laughs> like there's something that you're doing, even if it's as subtle as avoidance or worrying or ruminating, right? Or like trying to logic your way out of the thoughts. So, you know, if, if you're struggling with obsessions and you, I mean, you're doing something, you're, you're not practicing acceptance, you are avoiding, you are doing something. So like pure O does, does not exist. There are always compulsions. You just have to be like, make you just have to be a good detective and figure out what it is that they're doing so that we can reduce that and resist that. But um, yeah, so some really common mental compulsions and they're sneaky as heck, but um, you know, recognizing that they do exist. I think everybody probably does mental compulsions, but it's really anything that someone would do to try to make themselves feel better about an obsession. So really understanding and asking your clients or asking yourself, like when I have that trigger, what do I do or what do I try to tell myself? What are the thoughts that I'm having to try to feel better about that? Right. So really common one is ruminating. Dr. Michael Greenberg is a really great expert when it comes to the concept of ruminating in OCD. He's actually um, focusing on like rumination focused or rumination centered exposure and response prevention or treatment for OCD. So where rumination oh, wow. is like the focus of it, of the treatments. Um, so Dr. Michael Greenberg is incredible. Like he has wonderful podcasts, wonderful resources on his website, but he defines rumination as any mental engaging with a thought. I think that's really broad, right? Like that could literally mean so many different things. Um, so if that helps you, like any mental engaging with a thought, that's 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 fine. Call it rumination. I tend to like to be a little bit more precise. Um, so I call rumination like any way that you're trying to answer OCD's questions, right? So what if I snap my son's ankles? Well, would I ever actually do something like that? No. I mean, I don't think that I would ever do anything like that. I've never heard a fly before. That really freaks me out. I don't think that I would do anything like that. But what if I did like, and you can imagine, right? Like you can go down that like mental rabbit hole of trying to figure something out. And so that's how I define rumination, Um, like trying to figure something out, almost this like analytical process. Um, but there are also kind of more specified ways that people might engage in mental compulsions, mentally reviewing. Um, I think of that as like trying to go back and like replay something that has happened. Um, a good example of this is um, as I got really, really, you know, in the trenches, I started to have other obsessions. Like what if I accidentally left my son somewhere? I was so sleep deprived. Like I started to have doubts like am I I I I think I let I put him in the car but like am I so sleep deprived that I made that up like did I hallucinate that um and so I would get to the point where like I had to you know turn back and like check physically to make sure that he was there I had to see him I had to hear him it got to the point where I was like I was getting on off of the highway on the side of the highway and like physically taking him out of his car seat. Was that you who posted that the other day that I was like, oh, and then so many who were like, oh my God, I've done the same exact thing. I've done the same. It went viral on TikTok. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. It went viral on TikTok, um, which is crazy. Like that so many people freaking do that. Yes. Yes. Like so many people. Crazy, like absolutely crazy. It's always those posts that go viral on TikTok, which just, I think just goes to show like, we aren't talking about this. We aren't talking nope. about this, but um, it was just, it, it got so bad. And and so 
yeah, like in the absence of my physical compulsions, physical compulsions, checking him, trying to talk to him, pulling over on the side of the highway, let's say that I resisted all those things and I drove home from the grocery store, I might still the entire time be ritualizing in my head, remembering whether or not I, you know, trying to, you know, remember, did I put him in his car seat? And that still serves the same function as me physically getting out of the car and taking him out of the car seat, right? Like, so again, like mentally reviewing, um, you know, I think even us trying to essentially like use logic, like so many times, um, especially in like more generalized cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, before you actually get someone who is advanced and specializes in OCD treatment, you are taught to like challenge your thoughts, right? Like challenge the rationality of your thoughts. And I hate that. Like, I know that my thoughts are irrational. Like I don't need Mm -hmm. someone to tell me that. And like, it's like arguing with, with Donald Trump, like regardless of your political views, like that man is not interested in arguing with anybody. Like he doesn't, he thinks what he thinks and he doesn't care. Like he doesn't care what you have to say. And so like, go for it, but you're going to freaking burn yourself out really quick and you're not going to get anywhere. So, um, that's what I think about as far as like trying to logic your way out of OCD or like, so, you know, what that might look like in my example with the car would be like, like, Jenna, you got him. Come on. Like you've never left him anywhere. Come on. Like, don't be ridiculous. Like yeah. that. Well, I'm just going to come back with one more, but what if, right? Like there's always one more, but what if, and it's because OCD exists on our imagination, right? Like it's not, it's not something that exists in reality. It doesn't, it, it hasn't happened yet, or maybe it, you know, we're worried about the implications of something that had happened, but it's in our imagination and reality is only so it, reality and logic only go so far. Whereas our imagination is expansive, right? Like it's, it's, it's limitless. Yeah. So, I mean, the treatment is all about learning to tolerate that uncertainty. And it's not to say like, oh yeah, I have to tolerate 50-50, whether or not my son is actually in the car. I have to tolerate 50-50, whether I would actually snap his ankles. It's like, no, I'm not going to tolerate 50-50, but I'm not going to ask the question, right? Like I'm not going to answer whatever that probability is. I'm just going to do it. And I I have to do it like, because to not do it makes it worse. And like, I can't live a life where I don't drive my son places. I can't live a life where I don't put socks on my son. Like, and that's, that's all that will happen with OCD. Unless you are doing some elements of exposure and response prevention, like with a therapist or without a therapist or on your own or with, like, I don't care. There has to be in order for people to get better and overcome OCD. There has to be some element of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, reducing compulsions and reducing avoidance. There's no freedom that exists for me. There's no recovery that exists for any of us, like, unless those three things happen. So call it whatever you want, call it, call it exposures, call it behavioral experiments, like call it whatever you want, but like that, those three things need to happen if you want to be free. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we know from the, the research that ERP is the sort of gold standard for OCD. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious a little bit more about what that looks like. So I I heard you speak to it a little bit just right there. But so when you say accepting, sitting with the uncertainty, not using coping skills, which I wanna get into a little bit because I think that that is a really interesting point and one that I'm sure a lot of therapists 
either disagree with or don't know about or aren't educated on when it comes to OCD. So I'm curious, take me us through a little bit what ERP could look like and best treatment for OCD. Yeah, so we really call exposure and response prevention a two-part solution for a two-part problem. So two-part problem, obsessions, compulsions, two-part solution, exposure and response prevention. So um, the exposure piece is, yes, you will ideally work with a therapist. You will identify your triggers, your goals, all that good stuff, and you'll identify things that are challenging but manageable for you to do, you'll identify together ideas of exposures. So exposures are these anxiety-provoking situations that you are currently either not doing or doing, but ritualizing your way through, right? So exposures for me were to like drive around the block with my son and then to drive, you know, like to the next town over on back roads and then to drive on a highway and then, um, you know, putting socks on my son and then putting pants on him and and all those things, right? Like, so those would be the exposures. Um, But the only purpose of an exposure is to put yourself in a position where you can resist your compulsion. Because think about it, right? Like if I am doing an exposure to drive my son around the block, but I'm still checking to make sure that he's back there and I'm still pulling over to make sure he's in the car seat, like that's literally no different from what I do, right? Like exactly. if I am putting socks on my son, but the entire time I'm telling myself, you know, Jenna, it's okay. I'm going real slow. It's okay. You're not going to hurt him. And my husband's right there giving me super, like, it's literally no different. Like I'm just doing more compulsions. Like if anything, I'm doing, I'm just like reiterating and reinforcing those relationships and those associations in my brain, which is probably worse than just like continuing to live your life. Right. So again, the major point here, I think we think like exposures are kind of the sexy part, like, Ooh, exposures, like, Oh my gosh, what are some things I could have my person do? And Oh my gosh, what is my therapist going to have me do? But it's actually all about ritual prevention or response prevention, again, synonymous. So that is the most important part. You have to work with your therapist to identify what your compulsions are and anything could be a compulsion. It's what you're doing and what you feel urgently and desperately that you need to do in order to handle these obsessions, right? So anything could be a compulsion. Um, And so it's identifying those compulsions, identifying, you know, with your therapist, um, some ideas that are challenging, but manageable you can use, I use a zero to 10 scale. So zero is no anxiety whatsoever. 10 would be the most anxiety provoking situation that you could possibly imagine, or like very impossible to resist my compulsions. And we identify exposures that people could do without rituals. Cause again, that's the point. I always get people. I'm like, well, how difficult would it be for you to touch this? Or how difficult would it be for you to touch this? And they say, oh, that wouldn't be hard as long as I could wash my hands after. And I'm like, that's not the point, though. Like, I need to know how hard this would be for you to do and not ritualize. Um, And so just making sure that that's super, super clear. But then you will work with them on what's called a hierarchy, an exposure hierarchy. So I don't waste time with the zeros, the ones or the twos. I jump into like the threes or the fours. That's like the sweet and challenging but manageable spot, right? And we'll do exposures together. The point is to do an exposure, allow yourself to feel uncomfortable and kind of poke the bear and then not run away from the bear, right? Like to, to show that this is actually not a bear, that this is you putting socks on your son. And, um, there's a lot of different ways that it works. 
there's habituation and inhibitory learning and there's neural pathway changes that take place. Um, but to just make it super simple, the more you do these exposures and the more you change your behaviors by not doing the compulsions, you essentially come to learn that your feared consequences are not as likely to happen as you thought that your feared consequences aren't as catastrophic as you thought they were. And that God forbid, even if, you know, you did do something that, you know, it wouldn't be as catastrophic as like you could handle it. Right. Um, And, and essentially in addition to that, you get used to it, right? Like you get used to it. That's the habituation model. So you do these scary things, you get used to it. Your brain kind of learns that it's not all that scary in the first place. Um, And then you're ready for your fives and then you do your fives and then you're ready for your sixes. But of course, by the time you get there, they kind of all knock themselves down a peg, right? So by the time you're doing your tens on your hierarchy, they're no longer tens um, because fear generalizes and so does treatment. So um it's just really incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And I love it. Um, people usually feel better pretty quickly. I think people usually start to feel better just like after the psychoeducation session. Like I was just, just gonna I was just gonna say that. Um I, I used to work at a boarding school and I had actually a, a pretty big handful of clients that had OCD. And so I did exposure response prevention with them. It's amazing. And you're right, just the psychoeducation piece is it, amazing just for them to understand how this works, how we can help treat it and how effective treatment is just ignites this hope too, Mm -hmm. I think. Well, and it, it, on the surface, it seems so paradoxical and like, I get that, right? Like I get that it seems so backwards, um, but it works, right? Like it does. Um, it's not just like pseudoscience, like this is legit. It's been around forever. It is one of the most well-studied and empirically supported interventions. Um, And yeah, it's just incredible. Um, And it gives people freedom. Like, it's not just about getting to live your life again, right? Like being able to put socks on my son again. It's like, no, I'm now able to like every six weeks, I plan like a weekend trip where it's just me and my son and we hang out and I've gone on planes alone with him and on long car rides alone with him. And I love being alone with my dude. Like it's, it's not just about like being able to put socks on your kid again. It's about being able to do whatever you want because fear doesn't hold you back anymore. And it's amazing. Yeah, I love that. I'm wondering, um, well, I guess I want to make the point and then hear from you too, that it's not just that exposure response prevention is like a treatment that's really great for OCD. And you can also do all these other things. I I think this is really important because I think that is the case for a, a lot of the mental health conditions that we look at, there are sort of a variety of options that can be helpful. I'm thinking specifically of PTSD and mm-hmm. a few different approaches to that. Can you talk a little bit about why not only is talk treatment maybe not effective, but can be harmful? Talk therapy, I don't know why I said talk treatment. <laughs> um, talk therapy can be harmful for um, those who are experiencing OCD. Totally. So when you really understand the mechanisms of change behind exposure and response prevention, which again is pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, reducing compulsions and reducing avoidance, talk therapy is not those things. And if anything, it contributes to the opposite of those things, right? So, um, and talk therapy might be great for lots of other conditions, right? Like I've been to talk therapy before. Great. Whatever. Like more basic, more, um, you know, not as, not a specialized kinds of conditions, but 
not for OCD, not for OCD. And maybe sometimes helpful when you have like comorbid conditions. Like I'm talking about OCD here. I'm talking about OCD. It is not helpful. And if anything, it can be detrimental. So in talk therapy, I was just meeting with someone today who has been struggling for years and with talk therapy, she has a slam dunk case of OCD and panic. Um, And, you know, it's just, they're trying to talk about her childhood and trying to get to the bottom of things. And it's like, that just gives credibility to the fear, right? Like that just like puts a spotlight on the fear even more. It, you know, reinforces this idea that this is important, right? And like, that's what we're trying to get away from. Like, I'm trying to get them to understand that this thought is not important, that this thought is irrelevant and that it doesn't warrant a response versus in talk therapy, right? You want to dig and you want to dig and you want to dig and you kind of focus on it. And it's not to say that like, if someone comes to me and like, they really want to talk about something and they think that something is relevant from their past, like, of course, I'm going to grant you that. Like you're a person and I'm a person and I'm here for you. And I will make those therapeutic decisions in the moment. And as it I believe it benefits you like in the totality of the circumstances, but I'm also not going to allow talking about childhood and talking and talking and talking and talking lead us to nowhere. And I'm not going to let it become a distraction from what it is that we need to do. So you can imagine these exposures and relinquishing these compulsions that have arbitrarily and not actually given these people relief long-term, right? Like just continuing to talk about the problem does not solve the problem, right? Like that's, I think a lot of times talk therapy can turn into verbal rumination where you're just trying to focus on the problem. You're focusing on the problem. You're like cyclically thinking and, and talking about the problem, but you're not actually focused on a solution, right? Like problem solving to me is we talk about a solution. We like brainstorm ideas and we actually like put those ideas to paper and we do trial and error and we try one of those things and we go out and we actively do that. That's not just sitting and talking about it. So um, yeah, I think it can be a distraction from the point of ERP. I think it can a lot of, in a lot of ways, like be detrimental insofar as it like goes the opposite direction from what our focus needs to be. And I would just not want it to serve as a compulsion, right? Like that verbal rumination. Sometimes it can be confessing, right? Like I've worked with so many people who struggle with moral or scrupulosity OCD, and they're just like terrified that they're a bad person. And they're just sitting there confessing to their therapist, like all these awful things that they've done. And they might not even be aware of it. But meanwhile, they're getting all that reassurance from their therapist that they are a good person and that they're not a terrible person, right? Like, whereas with exposure and response prevention, I need you to go and like intentionally not open a door for somebody and sit with that anxiety and not do anything about it. Realize that the world continues spinning and that you don't need to know with 100% certainty that you are or are not a good person in order for you to live your life. Um, Yeah, it's just, and, and like, is it avoidance, right? Like is talk therapy avoidance, right? Like you can't do talk therapy and do exposures. Like, let's go, let's, let's do the exposures. I think, um, really identifying, you know, from your clients, like, why do they not want to do ERP? Like, do they think that it's going to be too hard? Do they not understand the benefit of it? Like, why are they so afraid of it? Because it can be, it's super collaborative. Like I let my clients decide for the most part, like what they want to do. I might give them some suggestions, but it's, it's, it's really about like debunking those misinterpretations versus just like not doing it at all. Absolutely. And I think this is a really important piece of sort of 
as a professional, as a therapist, understanding where your skill set lies and understanding when you need to get consultation with people who are experts in the field. For instance, like I am a therapist who's mostly working with those who have trauma at this point. And so I come from a very sort of attachment based lens and it's more psychodynamic, like looking at that childhood piece that is not helpful for those who are struggling with OCD. And I've seen it be not helpful before I, you know, back in my my earlier days, I have seen not realizing that someone had OCD and talking and talking and watching us go in circles and circles and circles until, of course, realizing something else was going on and understanding the value of this treatment. And so I just want to bring up that point. Like, I think it's so important for us to always continue learning and really understanding where our skill set is and where we need to get some more training and understanding Mm -hmm. around these. Yeah, I wish... I wish our grad school training was more like that. Maybe it's more like that now, but I don't I don't think so. I'm not that far. I'm like 10 years out and yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. If it wasn't for me like actively seeking out my own like additional training, I would not I mean, I would probably be doing talk therapy too. And yeah. like thinking that that was okay, right? Like Yeah, of course. Yeah, like I'm all about evidence-based treatments. Um but with that, you know, like you know, as part of like the evidence-based treatment model, Mm-hmm. there's, there's like a graph, there's like a, like three bubbles. I only remember what one of them, what two of them are, but one of them is like, obviously, yes, evidence-based treatment. Like you need to be using the evidence-based treatment for your, for your people. Like if you are working with somebody who has depression, you should be using the evidence-based treatments for depression, like behavioral activation, whatever else is there. That's not my niche, but you also like need to take into context, like the person, right? Like, of course there's, no one, there's no rule book. Like there, everything that I've said here today, like I'm sure I would work with somebody who there's an exception to that. Like Always. you part, that's like part of the, uh, beauty and creativity, but also like the hard part of being a clinician, right. Is that like, you have to, yeah. Like for the most part, we use these evidence-based treatments, but like, if someone comes to me and like, it's their, you know, deceased father's passing. And like, you know, we were working on exposure and like, she just wants a day where like she cries and feels all the feels like I'm going to give her that, like that feels right to me. We're all, the the goal is to operate from a client centered lens, no matter what, you know, uh, evidence-based treatment we're using. We're not robots. We're not saying, you know, you are prescribed ERP and that is all we will do ever. We're we're always, of course, wanting to meet the client where they're at and it's their lived experience and they're the expert on their own life and what they need. Totally. As we wind down, is there anything that you feel like you would like to tell listeners who maybe are concerned about struggling with OCD or just intrusive thoughts in general, like what, what would you suggest for them to do first? I would, especially if there's someone out there who's like, oh my gosh, like I, that's it. Like, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of that after people listening to this podcast. I hope so. I hope so. so. Um, Yeah. So if there are light bulbs going off for you and you're like, oh my God, like I never knew that was a thing and that's what I've been dealing with and that's it. Like learn as much as you can, learn as much as you can. I really truly do think that like just educating yourself and like wrapping your head around it um, is half the battle. Um, There are so many great resources. I'm biased obviously, but I think that the OCD community, as far as like the professionals go and advocates go, like there's so many great resources. There's uh, the International OCD Foundation. 
OCD Game Changers is another incredible organization. Um, There's so many great resources, like even on Amazon, but there's just so many great resources. All of the professionals, like especially on Instagram and whatnot, so many great podcasts. I would just try to really envelop yourself in this community and try to learn as much as possible about it. Um, And yeah, at that point, right? Like just, there's so many great things that you can do on your own, just even on a day-to-day basis. Obviously I would encourage and want everyone to have a therapist who understands and specializes in OCD. I know that that's not possible. Um, So just feeling empowered to do things on your own because there is so much out there. Um, And as cheesy as it sounds, you're not alone. Like I, you will find that there's literally no thought that you've had that someone else hasn't had. And like, we would never talk to somebody else the way that we talk to ourselves, right? Like we're always so much harder on ourselves, you know, oh my gosh, Jenna, like get it together. Like what's wrong with you? Like that thought is so weird. Like, oh my gosh. But like, if a friend was struggling with the same thing, we would be like, oh my gosh, like I got you, like, let's figure this out together. Um, so I think that self-compassion piece is really important too. And, um, not being afraid to like have to advocate for yourself. Like if I had to advocate for myself as boldly as I had to five years ago, chances are you're going to have to advocate for yourself too, right? So feel like prepared for that. It's not your fault. Um, It's just the unfortunate way that our maternal mental health system is. Um, And use words like ego dystonic, right? Like, no, these thoughts are ego dystonic. That means you don't like them. That means that they are inconsistent with your values. You are not like fantasizing about hurting your baby. You are distressed by these thoughts. Um, Yeah, just be ready to advocate for yourself, uh, unfortunately, but it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's just the awful state of of our system, unfortunately. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jenna. I will make sure I put all of that in the show notes. And where can people find you? People can find more about me um, over on Instagram at jenna.overboss. So just my first and last name with a period in the middle. Um, My website is www.jennaoverbaughlpc.com. I have a lot of resources there. Um, I have workshops there about OCD and anxiety and about exposure and response prevention, just to give you something to chew on um, in case you want uh, something else to kind of further your understanding there. Um, I do a lot on my podcast too. It's called All the Hard Things. There's also um, way back when I was in the trenches, it's called called like an anonymous series where I brought in anonymously a bunch of moms um, and other caregivers because this happens to dads too. It's not just a mom thing. Uh, It also happens to like adoptive parents, uh, which is kind of fascinating. It just goes to show that this is not just a hormonal issue. (laughs) Like this is a relational issue and like a doubt issue. Um, And yeah, so between uh, my Instagram, I'm also on TikTok, Jenna.Overba, on both of those accounts, my website, and then my podcast, you should be able to find me pretty easily. Yeah. And I will make sure I have that all tagged for easy access in the show notes. Thank you again so much, Jenna. I know like you and I have said earlier, there's going to be a lot of light bulbs that go off here. And I'm so grateful for you taking the time to share all this information and education so that other people can start to better understand what might be going on for them. Thank you so much. I hope so. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out and um, yeah, hang in there. It gets better. It absolutely does. Thanks, Jenna. If you enjoyed this episode,
episode, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and please leave us a review so that other people can find this podcast and hopefully get the support and the validation that they're looking for.